Have you ever been to a labour exchange? You know, the last time I went there, I was paid my money by a Sikh. A, a Sikh sitting there with his turban and a bangle on his hand. Now, I've, I was three years with the Indian Army in India. I, I was three years in India in, in civilian life. Um, I got on well with Sikhs, Hindus, the whole lot of them. But to, to walk into a British Labour Exchange and, and find you're being paid out your money by a Sikh, these are the people that, that in my small way, I help train and, and, and educate. Um, to go to a Labour Exchange is, is, is not a very edifying experience at all. Um, you know, you change into your old clothes to go to the Labour Exchange. Uh, but you, you've got to go. Edgar Mittelholzer had come to England in the 1950s from British Guiana, and he had become a best-selling novelist. What Mittelholzer wrote about was violence, the violence and the racism that had been at the heart of the European empires. Mittelholzer believed that it still haunted the minds of those who had ruled the empires. One of his most famous stories, My Bones and My Flute, is about a group of colonialists who travel up a river into the jungle in Guiana. They are searching for the remains of a giant slave rebellion in the past, guided by an old manuscript. But anyone who reads the manuscript starts to hear the distant sound of a flute, and they change. They become possessed by something that is reaching out from the jungle and working its way into their minds. It is the anger and the fear of the slave owner who put down the rebellion. And it will not let them escape. And Mittelholzer himself became angry with England. He saw it as a decaying, corrupted country. I think we've reached the stage, you know, when we have become so soft, you know, so effete, better use it in other words, so effete that we feel that, well, even criminals um, must be multicoddled. And you feel so strongly that you're prepared to go as far as to say that yes. there are human beings who should be categorized as vermin. vermin. Exactly, right. Anyone who is guilty of um, violence to the human person and to property uh, should be considered as human vermin and eradicated. I know it's a, rather, it's a, it's a violent thing to um, advocate, but I can't see any other cure to the um, crime problem. Every evening, he sat with his wife in his house in Surrey, listening to the music of Wagner. Until one night, Mittelholzer walked up the hill by his house, poured paraffin over himself, and set himself alight. He burned to death. The anger and the fear had reached out to the colonized too. In 1966, engineers monitoring Chinese television from a mountain in Hong Kong began to realize that something unusual was happening in Beijing. China was sealed off from the rest of the world. But what they saw were hundreds of thousands of people streaming in from other cities and the countryside. By August the 11th, a million and a half people had assembled in Tiananmen Square. Most of them were students or schoolchildren. 
then, Mount Zedong appeared on the balcony above them. Mount Zedong and his wife Zhang Qing had unleashed a new force in China. These were what Mao called the little devils of youth. He told them that they were going to save the revolution. Their job was to go and seek out the demons and the monsters who were corrupting the revolution. No one should be safe, he said. They should all be torn down and smashed to pulp. The new revolutionaries gave themselves a name, the Red Guards. Zhang Qing now had great power. She saw herself as equal to Mao. But she was convinced that the threat to the revolution also came from inside people's minds. She knew that even though China had gone through a revolution, little had changed inside the heads of millions of the people, including those in power. They still believed in a rigid hierarchy. She had been scorned as a woman by the other revolutionaries around Mao. They had done anything they could to stop her. Zhang Qing had rewritten old Chinese operas into epic melodramas about the need to challenge and destroy the old order. All the old figures of authority were banished. Instead, the ordinary people, including women, took centre stage. They were performed to millions of young Red Guards. And in talks before the performances, Zhang Qing told the audience how what they were about to watch were heroes awakening and realizing that they could take control. vividly remember the first time I saw the revolutionary play. I was about 14, 13 years old. And there was a rush of emotion of identity. I was so excited. Suddenly, I, I, I saw those plays after Jiang Qing's talk that night. And suddenly what she was saying made sense to me, that there was a fundamental difference between the revolutionary art and the traditional art. There was something in the play about the working class emotions and working class world outlook, and just the flamboyance of the working class figure on stage moved me. That is my society, that's my life. That's the people I see, that's the people I live with, and they're on stage. Mao and Zhang Qing suspended all schools and universities, which released 120 million students who were then sent out to find and destroy the demons that were hiding among those in authority. Our teachers were often paraded through the streets and we made them chant, I'm a demon, I'm a devil. I deserve to die. That's the song and they had to sing it. And they all sang. Whoever didn't got beaten up, some very badly. We used our belts to whip them. Some people use sticks. And the mother of this teacher was pushed over a bridge and 
fell to her death. L'impérialisme dicte partout sa loi. La révolution n'est pas un dîner. La bomba est un tigre en papier. Les masses sont les véritables héros. Les ricains tuent et moi je mets ma homao. Les bombes tonnent et moi je sonne ma homao. Horst Mahler had been born in what was now East Germany. His father had been a fervent Nazi and an anti-Semite. In 1945, his family fled across Germany from the approaching Red Army. Then his father committed suicide. Mahler grew up in West Berlin, and everything was buried. In 1964, Mahler joined a new group called the APO, the extra-parliamentary opposition. They knew that many of those in charge of the country had been senior members of the Nazi party. But no one talked about it. And they wanted to expose the Nazi crimes of those in charge and challenge their control of the country. There was the memory knocking at the door. And we asked, we asked our parents and our grandfathers, what did you do? all this time. Did you resist or had you been a little Nazi or had you been an opportunist? And <clears throat> this uh, discussion was blocked by the elder generation. And uh, so it became hostile. The student movement was astonished by the violent reaction of the German government. And Horst Mahler and other radicals began to think that the problem was far deeper than just individual Nazis. But maybe the whole Nazi system had also survived and was hiding behind the facade of modern capitalism. They argued that the very system of industrial rationality and bureaucratic control that had made the Nazi state so efficient had simply mutated. It had been taken up by the victors, above all by America, and was now being used to run the new global capitalism and the multinational corporations that were ruthlessly exploiting what was called the Third World. Anything that stood in the system's way was bombed or burnt, with weapons created by the same rational industrial techniques that made the mass consumer goods. But the people in the West couldn't see this, because they had been led into a dream world that used mass consumerism and sexualized imagery to entrance and distract everyone. Und zauberhaft schön, die Randlosen, Strumpfhosen. In reality, it was an iron cage, designed to look like an open and free welfare state, a false state of peace that was built really on horror and war. We were convinced that our situation here, the welfare state, is only possible as a result by the exploitation of the third world. And we said, we must disturb this uh, peace, this, this false peace in our country. 
in order to show the responsibility of us, that it is our task to implement sabotage in the centers of imperialism. Of course, racist America has done it again, but that's not going to end the burning in, burn, in, in, in Detroit, brother, because we built the country up and we'll burn it down, honkies and all. You Mr. Brown, did you tell them to burn down that school? Be serious. I ain't got to tell black folks what to burn. Did you tell them to shoot Lady Bird? Did I tell them to burn down Detroit? Did I tell them, did I tell America to bring black people here? Did huh. you tell them to shoot at Lady Bird? I say if they give me a gun and tell me to shoot my enemy, I might shoot you. Where have you been since the other night, okay, Mr. Brown? Violence is okay, but you get nowhere with non-violence. I like violence. Malcolm X started, but King finished. Malcolm X said that, you know, said the idea. He rooted it rather in the minds of many blacks. He really started to think the ball rolling. You feel that violence is necessary in order to get rid of what you would call the oppression? It wouldn't get rid of it. But it will open, you know, some of Whitey's eyes to say, well, you know, we're not joking. We really mean what we say. Do you find yourself really hating white people? Mm, yes. Some people hold grudges, and I do. Look how they treat mm, How many flows did my great-grandmother struck, you know? How many babies did she take care of that wasn't hers? You know, stuff like that. And I'm just one of those people who hold things. Alice Faye Williams had been born in North Carolina. She had run away from home when she was young because she was frightened of her violent father. And she came to New York when she was 15. She managed to get a place to study at the School of Performing Arts. Then one day on 125th Street in Harlem, she listened to a speech by Bobby Seale, one of the leaders of the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers believed that the only way to stop racism in America was for black people to get power. Simply changing the law was not enough. The anger and the fear remained hidden away in millions of people's minds. The solution was black power. And the first person to articulate this was Stokely Carmichael on a civil rights march in Mississippi on one day when the more moderate Martin Luther King was absent. So I just made a speech building up to it, building up, building up, building up, showing that it wasn't a question of morality, it wasn't a question of being good or bad, it was simply a question of power. And the weak black people had no power, and we had to have some power. The only type of power we could have is black power. Black power. We want 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 black power. That's right. That's what we want. Black power. They responded Alice Williams decided to join the Black Panthers. She became a member of a new chapter that had been set up in Harlem, 
and she changed her name to Afeni Shakur. She later explained what the Panthers meant for her. For the first time, she said, there was now something I could do with all this aggression and all this fear inside me. The Panther Party at that time took my rage and channeled it against them instead of against us. They educated my mind and gave me direction. And with that direction came hope. Oh, there were. I, I saw in the precinct a number of men and women being brought in. Uh, I had contact with some of the women we were when we were in the precinct, and they were also beaten. Uh, some had black eyes, some had swollen lips, and so forth. And uh, from what most of them said, they were just walking along the street, and most of them were pushed or hit with a club. And uh, when uh, they, you know, protested the fact that they were being hit for nothing, then they were beaten and arrested. We teach children that the policeman is a friend. In Harlem, however, although I know that there are policemen who are friendly and kind and decent and fair, this type of policeman is a real thing. Eh? Yeah, let's go at mean night. I do shows in aid of people like you. Michael de Freitas had been a gangster. He had worked as an enforcer for the notorious slum landlord, Peter Rackman. But now, he wanted to be a revolutionary. Then one day, he met the American black leader, Malcolm X, who was on a tour of England. They began to travel around the country together. When they arrived in Birmingham, the hotel receptionist thought that Michael de Freitas was Malcolm X's brother and he called him Michael X. De Freitas decided that in the future, this was going to be his revolutionary name, and he was going to lead a revolution in Britain. Michael X soon became famous. I would hate to be described as a politician because they're all such liars and thieves. If I'm going to deal in the realms of that type of public relations, I'd rather think of myself in terms of being a statesman, which is an art that this country has long since forgotten, like we have no statesmen today. I'm probably the only one in the country. Unfortunately, we find that the people of pale pigmentation are people who are so barbaric, like, for instance, right now this country, which is run by those type of people, have got more weapons of destruction to create, to destroy the entire world and they're so savage, they're building even more. You see, the British are such a strange people. Many of Michael X's supporters were the young white radicals who had moved into Notting Hill. 
into the very houses that he and the gangster Peter Rackman had run ten years before. Because Michael X was an outsider, the white radicals believed that he could see the system for what it really was. Like all revolutionaries before them, they had tried to appeal to the white working class and get them to rise up against the system. But no one seemed to be interested. And what we've been talking about here today is the problem of racialism and the problem of the attack by the government and by the employers on working people's conditions. The radicals decided that this was because the ordinary people had been brainwashed by the media and by consumerism and turned into what their theory called one-dimensional creatures, which meant that they were the wrong kind of person to start a revolution with. Their whole mind is, you know, like a cabbage. They're suppressed. They can't do exactly what they want. They haven't got any freedom. They haven't got any freedom to, to do exactly what they want under the system. What I mean, is, we certainly do. Yeah. Well, being able to express yourself in, in, in whichever way you feel is right. I think it's not only the system that's wrong. I think it's the people that's wrong. But one evening, after making a speech in Reading, Michael X was arrested. And he was sent to prison for 10 months for inciting racial hatred. The MP, Enoch Powell, had also made a speech at the same time, violently attacking immigrants. He wasn't charged, and he carried on being an MP. Which Michael X said rather proved his point about the racism underlying the country.
certainly no one that's going to tell you not to think what you honestly believe, but I think maybe, maybe you should re-examine a little bit the things that you believe, huh? Think about it. In the Cold War, the very idea of the individual and how the individual self worked had become political, because it was what defined the United States against the collective ideology of Russia. I think maybe you should re-examine a little bit the things that you believe. What concerned many psychologists, though, was that the Second World War had revealed how frightening and deceptive human beings could be. Particularly in Nazi Germany, where ordinary people, who had apparently been good citizens, had indulged in the most terrible horrors. And psychologists started to examine what really went on inside people's minds, trying to find ways of bypassing the conscious explanations that humans gave because those explanations could be deceptive. They wanted to find a way of getting directly at what was going on inside the brain. One of the key figures was a psychologist called Dr. Eckhard Hess. He had begun his career recording and analyzing animal behavior on film. Now, he did the same with human beings. Dr. Hess had discovered that the pupils in the eyes of individuals reacted dramatically when they were shown different kinds of images. The changes had nothing to do with the changes in the light. They came from within the human being. And Dr. Hess believed that they gave you a way of seeing the hidden emotional responses that were going on inside the mind feelings that the individual might not want to tell you about or even be aware of. You were looking directly at the brain. Really, since the, the eye is very, very intimately a part of the brain, embryologically and anatomically, it is almost the same as though there were a piece of the brain sticking out, behaving, and all the world is there uh, to be able to see it. And if that's so, what ought to be reflected or mirrored in the eye is really the behavior of the brain. Zhang Qing was now the most powerful woman in the world. She was in charge of giant cohorts of Red Guards that she guided and told who to attack and destroy. High-up members of the Communist Party were seized and paraded in front of tens of thousands of screaming people and forced to confess to thought crimes against the revolution. If they didn't, they were beaten and killed. But in reality, Zhang Qing had lost control. The revolution had never really changed the structure of power in China. And what she and Mao Zedong had unleashed was a vast anger and resentment against the elites that was now bursting out and overwhelming the country. In Beijing, there were mass killings, with bodies being thrown down wells or into communal burial pits. 
In Shanghai, hundreds of those targeted by the Red Guards committed suicide. But Zhang Qing had become famous in the West. A feminist writer from America called Roxanne Whitker came to Beijing to interview her. But as she talked to Zhang Qing, Whitker began to realize that something else was also going on, that Zhang Qing was using her new power to avenge herself on all those who had dismissed her or patronized her in the past. Zhang Qing also had a demon inside her. One of the main themes of her life was avenging herself against men who wronged her, politically mainly, when she was in her 20s. And uh, she did not strike back against them until the time of the Cultural Revolution, some 20 years later. They still had refused to give her access to the masses and to allow her to work. And uh, she finally destroyed them. Oh. They were removed from their posts. They were humiliated before the people. Placards were put up over their chests. They were dragged before the masses. They were humiliated. They were destroyed. Zhang Qing also turned on everyone who in Shanghai in the 1930s had held her film career back. Studio heads, directors and journalists were dismissed and beaten up. But the worst was saved for the film star, Lee Lilly. They had starred together in Bloodshed on Wolf Mountain. Zhang Qing had always believed that Lee Lilly had deliberately upstaged her. Now, Lee Lilly and her husband were seized by Red Guards. Zhang Qing ordered them to be tortured. Lee Lilly survived, but her husband couldn't bear it, and he committed suicide. We have warned every person in the world not to visit Palestine because Palestine is not a tourist attraction. It's a battlefield and it is our land. Anybody who gets killed or injured in Palestine would be carrying his own responsibility. Horst Mahler and a group of other German revolutionaries secretly went to a Palestinian training camp in Jordan. They had decided to train in urban guerrilla warfare. But things didn't go well from the very start. One of the leaders of the group, Andreas Bader, insisted on having mixed sleeping quarters. Then the female members of the group started to sunbathe on the roof. The commander of the camp told them to stop. Bader argued with him. The anti-imperialist struggle and sexual emancipation, he said, must go hand in hand. The commander refused. Bader put it more bluntly. Fucking and shooting, he said, are the same thing. Then, Horst Mahler found that the Fedayeen fighters in the camp had brought in pictures of Hitler. They pointed at them and said, good man, because he had killed the Jews. That 
was very hard for us, Marla later said, because we had a feeling of guilt about the Jews. We were very upset. In the end, the Germans went on strike because they weren't being given enough bullets each day to shoot with. So the commander stormed their house and threw them out. They came back to West Germany, helped by the East German Stasi, who saw it as a way of destabilizing the West. And the revolutionaries set out to use their training to force the West German state to reveal its true fascist face. Afeni Shakur was now a full-time member of the Black Panther chapter in New York. She was certain that the only solution in America was violent uprising. And she spent her time writing poems calling for a revolution. But the problem was that she and many of the others in her cell didn't know what to do to make this happen. They watched enviously as other Black Panthers on the West Coast fought running battles with the police and the military. All we have to say is all power to the people and you can jail a revolutionary, but you sure can't jail a revolution. Baby, you're going to have some deal in the do, because niggas ain't going to stop until they either get freedom or destroy everything that they run across. The question of who to attack in New York got more and more complicated. Some of the Panthers argued that they should target the ruthless landlords who made them live in rotting apartments and the bankers who refused to lend blacks money so they could never escape from the slums. These, they said, were the agents of imperialist control. But in New York, the majority of landlords and bankers were Jewish. And we are being exploited by people who are not, who do not live in our colonies, you see, or in our communities, who come into our communities and exploit us every day, you see, and they take the money back to their community. So this is like, a, colonial imperialism in our content, you see. And the people who explored us in our communities, particularly in New York City, are Zionist Jews. Afeni Shakur's group came up with a plan. They were going to plant bombs in big department stores like Macy's. And they would also bomb the Bronx Botanical Gardens and attack local police stations. But as they developed the plan, Afeni Shakur began to worry. She didn't want to kill civilians. And she felt they were being bullied into it by one of their group. He was one of the founder members of the cell, whose revolutionary name was Yedwa Sudan. And Afeni Shakur started to be suspicious. She wondered if he might really be an undercover policeman. Shakur told another member of the group about her suspicions, who then went and confronted Yadwa Sudan. Sudan immediately pulled out a gun, fired two bullets into the table in front of him, and denied it. He said that Afeni Shakur was just being a typical emotional woman. And the group believed him, not her.
When Michael X came out of jail, he found that the world had completely changed, but not in the way he had hoped. The middle-class radicals, who only a year before had been his most fervent supporters, suddenly didn't want to know him anymore. In Notting Hill, no one talked of violent revolution or of bringing down the corrupt power structure. Instead, a new group had turned up. They looked like young radicals, but they had a rather different agenda. And there's no more war Cos there's no Hundreds of student volunteers from all over the country had come to do a massive survey of everyone who lived in Notting Hill. It was the beginning of what was called community action. They were going to use the data to create neighbourhood centres, which they said would be a different way of empowering the local people. Parts of Notting Hill are closed off from the general mainstream of society treated differently from society, sometimes treated as a social dustbin, sometimes treated as a ghetto. Hello. Lighting, you've got... Is it We've included? got the lighting, we pay for it ourselves. And you pay for it yourself? Yes, and the heating. Cleaning. Oh, well, this doesn't really apply to you. This applies to other people. In <laughs> uh, other sorts of rented no, accommodation. we ourselves. You do that yourself? Yes. Um, also, room service doesn't really apply either, I imagine. <laughs> but soon, many of the local black residents who were involved with the project resigned. Because power seemed to remain firmly with the white professionals. Can we go in an orderly fashion and no damage to the property at all, please? Well, what made me resign was because I don't think that enough local people were being involved. And by local people, I mean West Indians. Students can't do much. Uh, they're relegated to a role of just getting information. Isn't that and, worthwhile? Well, I suppose it's worthwhile, but it depends on how the information will be used afterwards. The aim of Black Power had been that people would organise themselves so they could stand up against those who ruled them. Michael X realised that what was happening now in Notting Hill was the opposite. People were being treated as subjects to be counted and measured and managed. He became increasingly cynical about the Liberals' real intentions. These places always have fantastic faith. Oh, this is a tremendous place if you've got the money. You want to have a party. party. <laughs> a few years ago, you were reported to have said that whites who claim to help you are out to kill you. Do you... Um, Still believe that? Yes, I'm thinking when I said that, I was referring to people who are described as white liberals. They are some of the most vicious people I find in this country for the simple reason anywhere, not just in this country, because they're the kind of people who come to black neighborhoods ostensibly to help black people. <laughs> Michael X had come to believe that the talk of revolution had just been empty rhetoric that disguised something else. The new groups might look like radicals, 
and dance to black music. But really, they were the children of the colonialists who had run the empire. And they had no intention of giving up their power. That old system of power was simply mutating, morphing into a new form that camouflaged itself in radicalism, but still would manage and control. Michael X was an ambitious man who had badly wanted political power. I don't see anything to be terrified about, about powerful black people. I'm a pretty powerful black man. I'm the most powerful black man in Europe. But now he saw that he was never going to get it. So he decided that he too would revert to the old forms of power that he knew well extortion and violence. He set up a new organisation called the Black House. It deliberately excluded whites. He still talked of violent revolution, but really it was a front for taking over drug dealing in parts of London. He also persuaded John Lennon and Yoko Ono, who had shaved off their hair, to donate it and a large amount of money to the Black House. Michael X took the money and pocketed it for himself. Michael was putting every single cent he could get in his own pocket. He didn't care about black people. What did they think of him in the end when it failed? Well, they thought he was just a cheap corn man. They, they lost faith in Michael in the end. But he was just playing his games, you know. Why do you think he did that? Because Michael doesn't believe in black power. Michael is just on a power trip for, on, you know, for his own benefit. Michael doesn't like black people because Michael is half white. In a short time, I'm going to ask you to put your face up against that face piece and look in this box while I ask you to solve some multiplication problems in your head. The problems will be relatively uh, simple. They'll give, be given to you verbally, and I will ask you to give me the answer verbally back. Give me only the answer. Once you have given me the answer, dismiss the problem from your mind, and we'll go on to a next one. Many psychologists had begun to take Dr. Hesse's experiments with the pupils of the eye further. They were fascinated by the idea that there might be other forces inside the mind that people themselves weren't aware of. One of them was a young psychologist studying in America called Daniel Kahneman. His fascination with the complexity of the mind had come from a moment of terror when he was a child living in Nazi-occupied France during the Second World War. One day he had been stopped by an SS officer. Kahneman was a Jew and the SS was in charge of sending people to the death camps. He was convinced that he was about to be sent away to be killed. But the SS man picked him up, kissed him, and showed him pictures of his own son in Germany. Kahneman decided that the human mind was very strange and full of contradictory impulses. Seventeen times nineteen 
Now, he, along with other psychologists inspired by Dr. Hess, studied the pupils in people's eyes as they gave them all kinds of problems to solve while distracting them with music and noise. 223. They were trying to probe further into the human brain to see how it responded to the world outside in ways that the individual wasn't aware of. But as Kahneman and the others watched the individuals in their laboratories, isolated from the society outside, they were led down a very strange path. That in the age when the individual self was going to become the central focus, from politics through to consumerism, the scientists were going to come to the conclusion that maybe the conscious self wasn't fully in control of what humans did. 35 years later, Kahneman was going to be given the Nobel Prize for a theory that began with his work in the 1960s. He would come to believe that what we think of as the self is really just a small part of something else hidden inside our brains, a much larger part of the brain that actually experiences the world outside. But that experience makes no sense. It is just an ongoing chaotic rush of biochemical data that flashes up and fades away. And what humans think of as their self is actually an accessory that tries to make sense of this chaotic mass of incoming data. But to do that, it has to simplify and turn that data into stories that are sometimes so simplified that they bear little relationship to the reality outside. gives people the feeling that they are in control, but that is just a comforting illusion. Kahneman's theory was going to have a far-reaching influence beyond psychology, because the implication of what he was saying was that you could never change people's behaviour by appealing to them rationally. And in a strange way, Kahneman was saying the same thing as the left-wing revolutionaries. Human beings did live in a simplified dream world, but what he was saying was that there was nothing you could do about that. And in an age of individualism, when you could no longer order people about, the only solution was to keep them in that dream world and to make sure the dream world was safe and happy. The idea of appealing to them rationally changing the world was pointless. China was in a state of almost civil war. Different groups of armed Red Guards were fighting running battles with each other in all the major cities. But Jiang Qing still believed that real power was almost within her grasp. She had destroyed the one man who was seen as Mao's successor, Liu Xiaoqi. Red Guards took Liu from his house 
when he was beaten up and imprisoned. Everyone, including children, were told that he too was a demon. Then suddenly, Mao turned on Jiang Qing. At a public meeting of those in charge of the Cultural Revolution, he told her, You are someone who has grandiose aims, but puny abilities. Great ambition, but little talent. Jiang Qing realized that she was being dropped. In her operas, Jiang Qing had gone back into China's past. Her aim had been to rework them, to express a new kind of revolution. But in reality, she had reawakened a dark and poisonous violence that had lurked under the surface of China for hundreds of years. It was driven by a resentment of the rigid hierarchies that the revolution had not really changed. Mao had not given her or anyone else guidance about what to do with the fury that she had summoned up. And now she knew why. He had simply been using her and the violence that she created as a way of destroying all opposition to him. He had no other vision of how to solve the old divisions and resentments in China. His only aim had been to get rid of all his rivals in the party. Jiang Qing had been betrayed yet again. The members of the Red Army faction were now planting bombs and robbing banks all across West Germany. They announced that they had now become Maoists, followers of Mao Zedong, and they were going to awaken the popular masses. The government were desperate to catch them. And they turned to a man who said he knew how to find them. He was called Horst Harold. He was the head of a tiny federal crime investigation unit. It had no real power because any national police system was prohibited by law to stop Nazism from ever re-emerging. But Harold insisted that the only way to catch the terrorists hidden in the cities was to reintroduce control from the center. His solution was to use a computer because there was no law to stop that. Working day and night inside a protected complex, Herald created a giant computer network that monitored the movements of millions of people. He also fed into the computer vast amounts of data, not just about the terrorists themselves, but others, who, in his words, represented a danger. Individuals the data showed might become terrorists in the future. From all this, Herald created what he called logical sequences, patterns drawn from the data that predicted where the terrorists might be hiding in the cities. 
What he had invented was a new rational bureaucracy working from the center in which information was control. It was the start of mass electronic surveillance and it caught the terrorists. But Horst Harold was not just an unthinking technocrat. By studying all the data, he had, he believed, come to understand that the terrorists were just a tiny part of something much bigger that was happening all across the world. Something that those in power did not yet comprehend. And in 1973, he made an extraordinary speech that laid out the world that he saw coming. The violence and the horror that the terrorists created, he said, did not just happen because of something evil or sick inside their heads. It was a reaction to the new system of power that was rising up across the world. It was the system that the radicals had identified in the 1960s, the new global networks of multinational corporations and international finance that they believed were ruthlessly exploiting the world. If you want to get rid of the terrorism, Harold said, there are two alternatives. You either use political power to change and reform that global system, or you decide to systematically control the people and their anger and their discontent. But to do that, you would have to create surveillance networks like the one he had built but on a global scale. In Notting Hill, all the politics had gone. The counterculture had transformed completely into a new kind of consumerism, with self-expression at its heart. Michael X left London in disgust, and he went back to Trinidad. He moved into a large house hidden away in the suburbs. He said that he was going to set up a new radical organisation called the University of the Alternative. But it was clear that he was in a manic state of mind and increasingly paranoid. Then one night the compound burned down and Michael X disappeared. The police found a hidden grave in the garden. In it was the body of one of Michael X's last disciples, Gail Benson, the daughter of a conservative MP. She had discovered that Michael X's real plan was to grow marijuana and export it to the United States. So he had ordered a group of his men to kill her. He told one of them, Steve Yates, that she was an undercover agent from the CIA. She was seized from behind and stabbed several times across the body with a knife. 
Well, she was struggling very violently, and Steve Yates, who wasn't even supposed to be part of this particular operation, became impatient. He grabbed a cutlass, which in these parts is a long knife used for cutting sugarcane, and plunged it straight into her neck. Well, that was the fatal blow. The men then piled stones on top of her and filled in the rest of the grave. Sometime later, Malik phoned a house to see what the situation was, and Steve Yates simply told him, the tree is planted. Michael X fled to Guyana. He then headed south, away from the towns, down a small trail past mining camps. His aim was to get to the river and take a boat upriver into the jungle where he would be safe. It was the same jungle that Edgar Mittelholzer had described in his story about the ghosts from the colonial past. There was one person who was about to show that even in the growing mood of paranoia and defeat, an individual who believed in the idea of revolution could take on the power of the state and defeat it. One morning, armed police stormed into Afeni Shakur's apartment and arrested her. All the other members of her cell were also arrested. They were charged with what the government said was a giant plan to destroy those elements of society which the defendants call the power structure. It included attacking police stations and planning to bomb five large department stores and the Bronx Botanical Gardens. They became known as the Panther 21. Their trial was held in a state of paranoia about further attacks by the Panthers. But it also caused a sensation when it was revealed that three of the founding members of the group had been undercover police officers. What was stranger was that some of those officers seemed to have been unaware that there were other undercover agents in the cell. They were also the most active members of the group. We had to organize everything, one of the undercover agents explained at the trial, because everyone else in the group was off doing what they called their own shit. Prosecution claimed that the group had been inspired by violent revolutionary propaganda, and in particular by the film The Battle of Algiers, made about the Algerian struggle against French colonialism. They showed the film in the court. Unlike all the other Panthers, Afeni Shakur chose to defend herself. And at the end of the trial, she cross-examined the leading undercover agent. He was the man she had suspected from the start, Yedouard Sudan. His real name was Ralph White. A journalist who was in the courtroom wrote a book that described what happened. She started by getting White to admit that really most of the inspiration for the plots came from the undercover agents. Not only had they continually pushed for the violence and suggested the targets, but they had also arranged to buy the dynamite of yet another undercover agent. And they had also arranged for the cars to transport the dynamite. 
that really the plot to attack America had been created and driven by the American authorities. But then Afeni Shakur went further. She talked to White in the courtroom, not as a police officer, but as a comrade that she had spent 18 months with, and asked him about the activism that they had done together in the community. He said that he thought what they had done was powerful, inspiring, and he said, beautiful. She asked if he had misrepresented the Panthers to his police bosses. He said yes. She asked if he had betrayed the community. He said yes. When the jury was sent out, they talked for 40 minutes, came back and acquitted all the defendants. It was a powerful example of how an individual could challenge those in power and win. At the same time, the revelations at the trial of how the Panthers had been penetrated and manipulated fed the growing paranoia that was tearing the radical movement apart. Shakur, Michael X and the German revolutionaries had all set out to try and confront their societies and change the structure of power. But all of them, in different ways, had unleashed violence that was lurking underneath those societies. The roots of that violence lay back in the past, in anger and resentment against those in power who had made their different countries rich and powerful to do that had ruthlessly exploited others and had kept much of the spoils for themselves. The violence had burst out in different ways, across whole societies, among groups and inside the revolutionaries' own heads. But all of them became overwhelmed by the paranoia and suspicion and the horror that resulted. And all of them had failed in their aims. Now, 
those in charge of the societies wanted to get rid of that violence, to wipe it and hide it away. And in Germany, the revolutionaries were going to help them do it. In 1976, two of the remaining German revolutionaries helped Palestinians hijack an Air France plane. They flew it to Entebbe in Uganda. What happened next shocked the world. The terrorists took the hostages into the departure hall. And then they began to separate the Israeli passengers from the non-Israelis. The Israelis were the ones who would be executed if the plane was stalled. To the other radicals watching from inside prisons in Germany, who had dreamed of revolution, it seemed as if those dreams had now led them to behave exactly as the Nazis had done. Was it frightening when you realised that that was happening? Yeah, of course, awfully frightening. This is one, one of the main uh, points in the development, um, the awareness that we are from the same stuff as the fascists were. We understood something. We understood that fascism is a component in all of us. But we don't know to handle this contradiction. We don't have any mean to, to live with this evil part in ourselves. The Israelis mounted a rescue at Entebbe. The hostages were saved, but the terrorists were killed. But the Germans' behavior in the hijack had an incredibly powerful effect on radicals and liberals all across the West. Three years before, the man who had been chasing the terrorists, Horst Harold, had argued that the violence did not just come from inside them, that they were reacting to something that was happening in the world. But now, the revolutionaries and many of their supporters began to argue that maybe the violence was not in the system. It was inside them. A year later, a group of their supporters captured and killed a leading industrialist called Hans-Martin Schleyer. He had also been a leading Nazi in the war. At the same time, three of the leading revolutionaries killed themselves in prison. In an extraordinary moment, on one day in October 1977, two funerals were held in the same city, Stuttgart. One was for the revolutionaries. Hundreds of their supporters flooded into the cemetery, watched by a thousand armed police. The other was for Hans Martin Schleyer. The leaders of the industrial and financial establishment came together at a church in the centre of the city. It was a moment that dramatically symbolised what had happened. The industrialists and the bankers had come not just to mourn Schleyer, but to bury any idea of radical change in Germany. And for the radicals, 
was the moment, after all the violence and all the failures, when pessimism finally took hold. It's said that this is what all radical attempts to change the world inevitably lead to. And in the growing age of the individual, it led to the conclusion that the fault is inside you, the individual, not in society. Those who had wanted to change the world now began to turn inwards. This distrust was going to be reinforced by the growing influence of the psychologists, who said that human beings were really irrational and lived in a dream world. Out of that was going to come the modern system of power, in which psychology would join with economics and with finance to make sure that that dream world was managed. It would be a wonderful world to live in, but its weakness would be that at its root was a pessimism about human beings and whether they should ever be allowed any control. While outside the dream world, the things that the revolutionaries had wanted to change so much, the inequalities, the racism and the exploitation, would all remain untouched and would continue to grow unnoticed. But some of the revolutionaries saw what was happening and adjusted. Eldridge Cleaver, who had been one of the leading Black Panthers, set up his own fashion company. He designed what he called revolutionary trousers. They had a flap at the front, which he said would liberate the penis. While his fellow revolutionary, Bobby Seale, became a celebrity chef. Featuring the founding chairman of the Black Panther Party and gorilla extraordinaire, Bobby Seale. But one revolutionary was still not going to give up. Zhang Qing now joined with three others who had run the Cultural Revolution. They were determined to seize power when Mao died. They were known as the Gang of Four. Michael X never made it to the river. He was captured and brought back to stand trial in Trinidad. He was found guilty of murder and hanged. And in the future, the violence and the anger would be played out in the artificial world of culture. It would be the images and the words of revolution but in reality, nothing ever really changed. And what was forgotten in this new age, including by the psychologists who were exploring the self by drilling ever deeper, was that what you are and what you feel comes not just from inside you, but from where you are in the power structure, because that flows through you too. When you see an individual white boy, you're not afraid of that individual white boy. What you are afraid of is the power that he represents. Because behind him stands the local police force, 
the state militia, the army, the navy, the air force. When you see an African, there is no power behind him. There is no one speaking for his interests. There is no one to protect him. The guerrilla studies. The guerrilla studies. He doesn't rap. He studies and keeps his mouth shut. Study, children, study.